1: Hey there Mums the Word listeners, it's Kaz Jaff and I'm pretty excited to be here on episode 20 of uh, our podcast. It uh, couldn't be more fitting that we have Rhea Dempsey on this week and anyone in birth in Australia or the birthing world for that matter. Uh, globally, will know her work. She's a highly respected childbirth educator, author, speaker, counsellor, and birth attendant with experience at over 1,000 births. With adult daughters and grandchildren of her own, Ria's understanding of birth has been gained over four decades of working with pregnant women, their partners, support people, midwives, and medical practitioners in home and hospital settings. This uh, episode, we're talking all about the... Um, their um, process of reframing pain. And uh, Ria talks about something called the crisis of confidence and something that is predictable in birth. And we also discuss the different types of pain, which is really... Um was really clear, but also uh, from an educator's perspective, and she made it so crystal to be able to get the point across that um, I really feel excited to share this episode with you and know that you will be sharing it within your networks with anyone uh, either in birth or also uh, pregnant at this time. So very fitting that we have Rhea Dempsey on for our 20th episode. I couldn't be more excited and honored to have you here. Please share our podcast. Um, It's growing around the world and I couldn't be more proud and uh, enjoy the episode. Hi Ria, so excited to have you on the line. Uh, please share us a little bit about your about
0: yourself. Hi, Kaz, I'm so happy to be here, and um, I work as a childbirth educator and a birth attendant, and just really a passionate person around the whole issue about birth. I've been doing that now nearly for, um, into my fourth decade, so nearly 38 years have been involved in that work and um, still find it, you know, entirely engaging as well as the sort of feeling of the urgency of some of the issues that I've um, really been engaged with for so long. Um, And maybe just to go back, to go back to how come I got involved in this work all those years ago. And really of course, as so many people who get passionate about things in their lives, it's often through their own personal experience. And so for me, it was really the birth of my own first baby. And when I look back on that now, I wish that I, in the you know, the woman that I am now had been with me, that new mum having that first baby all those years ago. I wish that I'd had myself with me, if you like.
1: Totally understand what you mean <laughs> with
0: that. Yeah, you wish you had yeah. the the information and the knowledge that you now have. Yes. Yeah. So I, at that point in my life, you know, a committed relationship, uh, really that beautiful yearning for that baby, readiness, everything ready. And I, at that point in my life, was a physical education teacher and an outdoor adventure sort of instructor and facilitator and just generally all-round very physical and so trusted my body felt like I'd done a lot of things with my body was healthy well so I was really just expecting that birth experience to go very straightforwardly um, and I guess also I felt like I'd done we were in London I was giving birth in London and um, I'd done a little bit of um, research at the hospital that we ended up going to um, it was a large large teaching hospital and childbirth education at that point was sort of just big group lectures. There were probably about 200 people at the lecture and an obstetrician just telling us what happened in the hospital. Um, I remember I did ask in that large group, you know, because I'd done a bit of reading, what did they do episiotomies routinely? And they said, no, no, we don't do them routine, routinely. We only do them if they're medically necessary. So that sort of that was the most reassurance I got really in terms of some of the things that I didn't fully understand how important that questioning and really finding out the truth of those issues was at that point. So um, when the labor started, as it, you know, did in that natural, normal way through that hormonal dance between me and my baby, so I was feeling confident in my own body and also sort of feeling confident that, oh, well, we're on the same page with the place that uh, I was giving birth in. But as the labor progressed or didn't, as the case was when we got to hospital, um, then started a whole lot of what we now call that sort of cascade of interventions and really a a sort of a fight between what I and at that point, uh, you know, my husband which, of course, that was the early days of fathers being, that was a fight in itself to get fathers present at the births. So it just felt like we were sort of in this fight to make a space for me to get on and do what I felt my body could do up against a whole lot of what I now come to see, you know, routine practices and protocols. And also then because of that sort of fight, it became really a bit punitive in terms of the caregivers and You know, we weren't really complying with the way things were happening. So it just – and, of course, we now know that that can really play out strongly in the the hormones. So, in fact, the labor just really stalled and then more and more of those issues coming up. And so eventually the birth – vaginal birth in the end but but not exactly how I had thought and hoped. And so I came out of that birth experience – Really thinking, you know what what happened there? What the hell happened there? You know, I went in this this woman really feeling like my body knows what my, what to do. My baby's healthy. It's all going to go straightforwardly. We've done a bit of research, and yet here I'm ending up with a birth experience which really wasn't what I had hoped for and wanted. And um, so that sort of really started to radic- get it cause a radicalizing process in me, where I started to then ask more questions and do more reading and found the books that I wished that I'd read before I had my first baby. I must probably say that because of all my physical education background, I probably was fairly arrogantly sort of naive and trusting that, you know, I would certainly be able to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So in, in that sort of radicalization, I then came across a lot of information that really pointed to me that I needed to be in my language now, much much more savvy about what was happening in those big hospitals, and um, to, yeah, to to prepare myself differently in terms of information, but also to prepare myself differently in terms of understanding who I needed to have with me and to support me, so that really I could trust my body and drop it into my body and allow that great strength and, you know, body knowledge and my body's capacity to really come through in those very instinctive ways to birth my babies. So that was um, delicious having a baby, but really quite a shake-up to my sense of self and a shake-up to um, a whole lot of things that I'd sort of just taken for granted, I guess, before. Um, So on... We came back to Australia then, after when she was quite small, and I had the really the great d- delight and privilege of being asked by a few friends back here, who were having their second babies, to come along to the birth, having home births, having their second babies, and to, for me to come along and to sort of be looking after their toddler, whilst the birth was happening. And as is sometimes the case with those second babies, I attended the first few births in that with that in mind. But the babies were just really jumping, and <laughs> <laughs> they were coming, and nobody else was there, so I ended up catching you know the the first two births I went to catching the baby catching the baby, so that was i mean can you imagine how amazing <laughs> yeah. when
1: was this what? So this is
0: really in the late seventies
1: amazing
0: so that you know, I guess was confirmation to me that really birth could work and that bodies work and that women know what they're doing. And there are such things as birthing instincts and that babies know what they're all about. And so that was just a beautiful grounded uh, experience of birth, even before I was pregnant with my next baby myself, and through the time of being pregnant with my second baby. So we then went down the track of choosing home birth for for that second baby. And that was a... If she was born on a Saturday, it was like a big part. Well, in the late 70s, (laughs) the early home birth scene, as we were sort of reclaiming home birth here um, in Australia and really across the world, um, they were big parties. They were big parties. Um, It was just A big Saturday afternoon evening party, really. That birth and just beautiful, very straightforward, as I'd imagined with that first baby. I'm loving this,
1: I'm loving this. <laughs> yeah, keep, keep telling
0: us more, yeah. So, um, so I'd been at some births, I'd gone, to, my husband and I had gone to the Childbirth Education Association for education before that uh second birth, the home birth, and that. The Childbirth Education Association here in Malvern in Victoria through that time was really quite a radical sort of bunch of passionate birthing women, you know, really now, I mean, things have moved so far and I'll come on to that soon. But um, back at that time, we were really starting to look at what we called active birth and Again, making these choices in hospitals and at that point the choices were around you're not, not being shaved and enemas and having your partner there, um, things that in a way have been usurped in present birth culture by much bigger issues actually. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it was a beautiful place to be being supported for the birth and um, understanding some different things about birth that, that empowered me for that next birth experience, so fantastic, um, with that jumping party and really I felt in her birth as she came down that what a lot of women say, that sort of glorious birth song that you're singing where you feel like you're in that, that, that space.
1: That
0: power. Yeah, that power and feeling like, you know, because probably every second every second somewhere in the world there is a woman who, or many hundreds maybe of thousands of women who are singing that song with you right at that same time as they're birthing their babies. And I just felt that glorious connectedness into that wider sort of universal experience as well as my own yeah. sense of feeling the primal sort of nature of of women's bodies as they do this work of birthing. So it was just a great experience all around. Um, so then... From then on, really, I was very involved in – In, um, I did some training. We did, used to do go out to schools and talk about birth in, to school groups. And this is the Childbirth Education Association, which I became part of. Um, hotbed of beautiful, strong, powerful women really reclaiming something about our strength in birthing. Um, that, so that went on. Um, I then became a childbirth educator myself and so have been teaching childbirth education really since the late 70s in various ways. Um, And because in this reclaiming of something about that aspect of birth and particularly home birth, what was happening in the early time was that there were no medically trained midwives who were involved in the home birth scene so it sort of by default meant that women like myself there are a small group of us who I guess we might now call us lay midwives but basically we were women who'd had births ourselves home births ourselves and had been to a few home births and so then you were invited to more home births and it happened very organically that sort of growth um we weren't medically trained uh so I guess really we we were now what would be called a doula, even though that that language wasn't really used at that point um so that was happening, and through the time of doing my work i've been now at over a thousand births I think it's a thousand two hundred something like that um so that's i mean can you imagine more privileged, oh, <laughs> more privileged life really yeah. um so that uh, yeah so that all came together, so education then often women and couples who you were coming and doing classes and workshops with you would then invite you to be at the birth. Um, I've understood that much more deeply now. I mean, one of the things that really in more recent years we've come to understand, which we didn't fully back then, we knew that hormones were involved, but we didn't know as much about the hormones that drive birth and breastfeeding and bonding. We know much, much more about it now, and in particular with Dr. Sarah Buckley's work, which came out in particular that came out late last year, we know a hell of a lot more. Um, So we were working on feelings. We we used to talk about, you know, the feeling, the energy has to be good, the feelings that the mother needs to be in touch with her feelings to really, we're talking about, you know, addressing fears. And of course, we now know that that's sort of sitting on top of what's happening then in the hormonal space is the mother being more run by adrenaline in the birth situation which is not which which won't work well for the birth or is she running more with oxytocin which is of course what's needed um so these things have become much more sort of fleshed out in terms of our understanding through these years but way back then we were on the case about it in terms of our intuition i think rather than having that that backup of science is now telling us that we were money (laughs) um so all of that learning, being with all those women, having my own third baby, another another home birth, beautiful experience, a much quieter experience, just the sort of immediate family, not the big parties, because we did learn that when you had those big parties at home births, generally things <laughs> slow down. It made for long labours, yeah, longer labours. So, um, and again, this was, this was before water births were coming into the picture. So things have moved in some beautiful ways, but also some some much more troubling ways in terms of the birth culture. So that was my early introduction, and I guess um, it, it just, I mean, you just, with those experiences, could you leave it? I mean, really, would you do anything else? I, no, I,
1: well, here I am making a podcast for you. That's my <laughs> <laughs> access to the birthing world still. You know, you don't want to let go. I get it.
0: Exactly. So, you know, maybe we might just say we're just oxytocin junkies. Yeah, totally like happy but
1: with that title.
0: Yes. And I mean, whilst sort of talking about that delight, but of course there are much deeper and important issues about what that actually means for individual women and their babies, individual women, their partners, their families and their babies, as well as, you know, that much broader issue about what it means to the to us as a race, really, about whether we're honoring our our hormonal drives and that capacity in particular for love and bonding that comes through all that oxytocin. And in present time in the birth culture, you know, with the way that we're really eroding all of that that's a very worrying thing for those of us who feel that like passion. So, uh, as well as the delights about being around birth, meaning that I've stayed in it for all these years, there's also that driving passion in me to to hold on to something that seems to be slipping away. To be pure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's continued to be my life's passion, and um, I guess so you know the privilege of also working over some decades and seeing those shifts and changes so for instance that early time we were really working hard to get fathers present in the birth space um when they first were coming into the birth space in fact they weren't involved in the ways that women and their partners expect and feel and work towards now they were really like sort of static static observers kept sort of in the you know in the corner not allowed to touch the woman because she was seen to be a sterile field and were sent out whenever anything was going on anyway. So it was really quite a different experience, that early experience of fathers being present at birth. And, in fact, it's not even really one full generation embedded Um, and it's only still in quite small pockets of, uh, you know, across the world. Yes, certain
1: cultures definitely don't go for that. Yeah,
0: no. So, but watching that shift and change of these, so now I'm a grandmother, you know, and seeing my beautiful sons-in-laws being present at the birth of their children and the ways they're so beautifully involved in that physical connectedness with their partner, that that love and care that they have, and that just translates so beautifully into the hormones all being in that beautiful, you know, pumping space for that birth to go well and then everybody falling in love with those babies, dads, mums, grandmums, granddads, everything. I mean, how wonderful. So that shift has been a beautiful one to watch. Although having said that, um, there's one sort of question mark about that aspect about fathers being present at birth, which I'll maybe come back to when I talk about the biggest issue that I tend to focus on now in terms of birthing, Um, and that is – uh, this aspect of, I mean, these are big social, cultural changes, not across the world, of course, but in the, the sort of developed world, I guess, and certainly in the world, Australia, where, where my practice is, is that we're, we're now in what I call, that women are giving birth in what I call the labour bypass eras. So the sort of cultural messages and what's on offer for women in terms of having their babies you know, really, they don't have to engage if they don't want to. I mean, firstly, they don't—you know—don't necessarily have to have a baby. But if they do have a baby, they don't have to engage with the labour. Yeah, like as,
1: the schedule. As a, you're saying. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: We, in a way, as a culture, we don't value that process of women labouring. We don't value or understand so deeply what those processes are, so that women can either, you know, not even not labour at all. So. An elective Caesar. And before I actually go further in this conversation, of course, in any situation of birth, there are times when these, you know, wonderful interventions that have been developed for true medical need, seizures, you know, pain relief, all manner of interventions, all of them brilliant in situations where there's a medical need. I mean, in Australia and other developed countries, we're entirely privileged to have access to these interventions when they're needed. Agreed. Yes, there are many women, of course, across the world who would dearly love to have access to, mm-hmm. to such interventions in situations where there's medical need and they don't have access to them. So with anything that I'm saying, I'm, I, I'm not at all, you know, having a go at the interventions in, in a general general way. But because of these sort of shifts, these cultural shifts, there's a lot of the interventions are happening not because of medical need, but if you like, because of social choice or social expectation. Yeah. So just, these are some of the big changes. And the, the um, aspect in particular of this labor bypass era, so women don't have to labor. They could have an elective Caesar. Or if they do labor, they don't have to engage with the labor. They don't have to engage with their body or their feeling state or their, you know, the intensity because, you know, they can have an epidural and and be just updating their Facebook page while the whole thing's happening or something like that. They're not really having to engage fully in the process.
1: I'm not sure whether to laugh or cry,
0: actually. (laughs) Me, me, me me too. So, So this is the sort of cultural norming that's happening And one of the things that that particularly targets is the aspect about pain or working with pain in labor. And so this over more recent years has become one of my strong focuses to, you know, reframe something about these attitudes and this focus on pain in labor, to sort of claim it as a a point of power. And maybe I'll explain that a little bit more because what what we understand, of course, now is that firstly, I guess, to reframe pain in labour, we've got to think, first of all, about functional physiological pain of a body working strong and hard really at peak performance levels. Yes. That's the way I understand birthing. As distinct from, if you like, pathological pain that's coming out of a body not working well or illness or danger or...
1: Nociceptors. A major,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because in the main we've placed birth into a very medicalized context, I think there's a strong blurring of these two aspects. So for, for, for my work but also for women who, women who I call willing women, women who still, even in this labor bypass era where they don't have to engage, but women who still have that yearning who want to engage with their bodies and their babies and the hormones and the pain. But for willing women, they need to be clear about this distinction, about that functional physiological pain and find ways to work with it rather than this sort of blurring which is so strongly the normalizing of what happens to, about pain in labor in the hospital system in particular, which is this blurring with medical medical situations about pain
1: so as soon as they feel anything it's like oh something's wrong
0: basically yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, so that distinction is very important first of all, the difference between functional physiological pain and pathological pain yeah. And I, in my work, I do a lot of, and of course, you you'll hear the physical education teacher in me. That's <laughs> well, in the book as well. So, yeah. um, but then also there's the aspect of not only to have that in mind, but to be aware that really the cultural message still also lives in all of us now. And the cultural message, it seems to me now, is to absolutely demonise labour pain. And to pity laboring women. So that all those messages about you don't have to be a martyr or oh, you're a poor thing, you know, are so sort of undermining of women's capacity to normalize that intensity and to feel like they've got the capacity to work with it and to find something that's positive in working with it. So that, that sort of, even though before the labor, these willing women are sort of trying to discount that cultural message but nonetheless it's there and it's embedded and it does you know come forward so often in those birth experiences so I'll talk a little bit more about that later but I want to also talk about you know the context as I say of of mainly in hospitals they're thinking about pain that people need to be safe from you know and all the all the drugs and the drug systems and regimes are about keeping people comfortable mm-hmm. with that blurring between, you know, medical sort of pain, if you like, and also in this case physiological pain, they're still working from that same premise of, oh, you can be comfortable and this is the way we can keep you comfortable. We can offer you this and we can offer you that. And it's, it's sort of called a pain relief paradigm that functions in the hospitals, whereas really for women, willing women who want to have a go at a normal physiological childbirth, we used to call back in the 70s natural childbirth, um, they they need to be having a sort of a working with pain mindset and make sure that they're surrounded by people who also hold that and have some expertise to to help them when the going gets tough. In the same way that you would if you're undertaking any other sort of peak performance of your human body, which where you know that you're going to be working with functional physiological pain or the pain of exertion, healthy pain. um, We need people around us who trust that, who know what it looks like, sounds like, what it's accomplishing, and who can encourage us forward when we reach points where we don't think we can go on. So this now sort of brings us to another key point, I guess, of not only my book, but my work, is to normalize what I call crises of confidence in labor. So I need to just do a little bit more background on that to bring that forward. That's okay. Yeah. So quite some years ago, I mean, most, most, most of us, I guess, who read anything about birth will understand about first stage, second stage, third stage, Mm -hmm. and in particular that in first stage, late first stage is that cervix is dilating, where or opening where. You know there's this idea about transition that last part of first stage that sort of eight to ten centimeters as the cervix is opening, and that that stay that that sort of phase called transition in most of the literature literature they talk about this is the point where women are going to feel like they don't want to do it anymore or they can 't do it anymore and that they want to give up and they get highly emotional and so on and so on and that has been considered to be transition for pretty well forever mm-hmm. i through one birth in particular, which I talk about in the book, but um, let me just talk more generally, uh, I came to see myself that um, that wasn't always the case and also started to talk to a lot of midwives and other others who were at, around births about did they ever sort of misread a birth situation where they felt that the mother was exhibiting what they were expecting to be transition, so expecting the mother to be quite late in first stage and getting close to starting to push her baby out, only to find that, in fact, that distress, emotional distress that she was exhibiting wasn't transition, actually, but, in fact, that the mother was much earlier in the, in the labour. And I came to see after one birth and then talking about that more widely that it was happening quite a bit, that people were both the mothers themselves were misinterpreting as well as midwives were misreading. So I felt that as a childbirth educator, I needed to be able to talk about this differently, to educate about this differently, to normalise something about that. And also because of my physical education background and my own experience with my body and in, in sort of peak performance achievements of one sort and another you know, it's pretty normalized to understand that you're going to be hitting sort of pain barriers, I guess, is that, that's the main language that we would use, that, you know, if you're running marathons, or you're just running for you to increase your fitness, or you're swimming, or you're doing any other things, you or even at the gym, you're going to be reaching points where those sort of pain barriers, that next level of intensity is coming forward and that for you to continue with whatever you're trying to achieve, you've got to find a way to work through and into those pain barriers. So so I could see that this is part of what was going on in, in birthing and that you could call it a pain barrier. I, I just felt like a, a, a language that was better because, again, as a physical education and outdoor adventure sort of person, I, I come to see that many of us really don't fully realise our full physical capacity because of what we think and what our emotions are saying rather than what our body's capable of. So that idea of a crisis of confidence, that crisis of confidence where you feel like this is too much, I can't go on, I'm too tired, I'm too this, I'm too that or I'm too the other, um, this is what we were seeing in, in births and we we're seeing it happen much earlier in the labour than transition. And the transition was was sort of a different transition came out of a whole confusion of body signals that were happening as that cervix is fully opening and the baby's coming down further and the pressures are all changing. It's a a different thing. But when either midwives or women themselves were misinterpreting that and feeling, well, that they were, you know, nine centimetres only to find that they're one or two centimetres dilated, then that really is very undermining of that feeling of a sense that you could go on. So I um, just felt very strongly that to normalise that that idea of that intensifying of the labour, that there are certain points, and in particular, that there are certain predictable points where women would be reaching these crises of confidence, and they're the points where the hormones are really kicking in much more stronger, strongly, and so you know then the contractions are getting longer, stronger, deeper. More powerful, more effective, but more functionally, physiologically painful, and that those sort of points where that's, if you like, the you know the body is jumping up to that next intensity, that these are the points where these crises of comfort confidence would come forward. Um, Of course, if you just hold that thought for a moment, it's like this is this is happening in the context of a culture which is you know entirely demonizing labor pain but pretty much we're a, you know we're a pain relief sort of culture anyway i think they say that australia buys more more over the counter pain relieving stuff than anywhere else in the world so we've got a whole pain free pain killing sort of mindset so it's little wonder that that also sort of translates into the birthing arena yeah. Um, so that crisis of confidence idea to normalize it, to be able to predict when that's likely to happen, for willing women to understand that and to know that when they reach those points of those crisis of confidence, they're probably going to feel you know, that they can't go on, that they don't want to go on, that they shouldn't have to go on. And that the sort of cultural message is alive and well in their in their psyche at that point about oh, yeah, all those women who said that don't be don't be stupid, you don't have to be a martyr, you know, the epidural is the way to go. They now, at this point in their labor, feel like, yes, they were absolutely right. That's exactly what I need. I need that epidural. So it's a very undermining of that resolve. And unless women are savvy about that and have got people around them who also understand that whole dynamic and who trust the process of labour and who who have some skill about how to support women through a crisis of confidence, which... You know, labor that's well supported, it's you know not only last four or five contractions, but they're crucial contractions because if the mother can't find her way through them and it isn't supported to work through them, then, of course, those pain relieving um, drugs come in and in particular, the epidural, which really hijacks the, the birth experience into a different experience entirely. I've come to, you know, way back in the late 80s, when epidurals started to come in, we welcomed them. We welcomed. We thought how fantastic they'll be, so brilliant for women who have to have cesareans to be awake and aware and really tuned to that baby straight away. Little did we know that we would actually be broadsided by epidurals. And I've now come to talk about them as the Trojan horse in the in the birth space because they look like a pretty package, but in fact they're very undermining of the capacity for normal physiological childbirth and then for so much else that comes comes with you know why that's so important yeah. yeah yeah so that's my big passion now to talk about that and the i mean much more as well but that's sort of one of the central cores that i've come to see that if if women can understand that and to set themselves up with good good support what i call an you know facilitating holding circle in the same way that you might if you're going to undertake a marathon or you know some personal training or whatever so in birth, we, we need that as well. So that taps into the sort of doula story and um, some of the other research around having, you know, of care and so on with people who know who you are and know what you're, what you're wanting and who can help to really, you know, keep you on if you like.
1: Like a
0: coach, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So those, those things. So that's, a yeah, an important part of what I present now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, and so do you think it's that generally, it's just that unknown, you're basically saying if we know that we're going to have these surges, yeah. um, and we're going to have these predictable crises, and you know that and you do pretty much it's like you, it's on the other side of the, you know, you, you're almost there, basically, yes. and knowing that you're one step closer that if people even knew that they'd be willing to, I guess, I push through or deal with the inverted commas pain. I mean, it's really it's really feeling and awareness rather than what you say, as in pathological
0: pain. I mean, yes, I love so, how
1: you make that distinction because it is so important. Yes, it's exertion, really.
0: Exactly, and I mean, I guess also if we're thinking about other exertion activities. And if we're hitting a pain barrier, we know that if we're supported through it and we move through it, that we get a whole other surge of energy yeah, and we get yeah. a whole other surge of hormones. Same, same, same in birthing. Yeah. So the great, one of the great sort of distresses for me is that women are sort of through this cultural and the way that cultural message is played out in the hospital system in particular, that at that point when they reach that distress, they're saved by the drugs, which really robs them of the opportunity of going through that those few contractions, and then being on the other side of that with that huge burst of endorphins and the oxytocin coming through more so that they've got that shift in consciousness that happens that takes them deeper into what I call that evolutionary regression, which is really the setup for a beautiful, beautiful birth. And so many women miss out on that because of this the cultural sort of message plus the sort of fear about pain. And then when they first feel it, if they don't, can't normalize it, that's part of, part of the process then they, they're sort of diverted off into this pain-free situation before they've really gotten into the juice of all of that potency that can come of if course, they can move through, through those crises of confidence. So, and,
1: and I think let's not forget the empowerment that's lifelong like lasting. Exactly. It's not just that, exactly. that hormonal you know, juice that you're soaked in thereafter yes. and you know, the weeks thereafter or why you continue to breastfeed and bond. It's, it's, it's thereafter as a
0: woman exactly and i love what you
1: say in the book um i just i really love it when the regression happens the 21st century latte sipping chick <laughs> dissolves and the primal birthing woman emerges i mean it's yeah. so true we've got to get out of our thinking brain and and feel what's been going on from the beginning of time I and mean, that's our very essence
0: yes and i mean really for for me it's, so privileged to see that happen over and over and over again so wonderful to see that potency come forward and 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 women yeah those women come out of those birth experiences you know feeling like their own power but also that power of community of knowing that you know with the right support i can really do anything which is a pretty fantastic way to be starting that 50 60 70 years of parenting they've got coming forward
1: absolutely almost because, essential right to bring exactly, you back to those in those
0: in those toddler years anyway exactly because i'm pretty sure through the parenting thing that there's quite a few crises of confidence where you feel like you don't think you can do it and you wish that somebody would save you from it yeah, so um it yeah, goes exactly. through there too it it reminds me also that there's a, there's a particular maybe a mantra or a, a comment that I make that I use a lot in my work, which is, um, you know, you don't have to like it to do it brilliantly. So, you know, if we, yeah, if we only did the parts of parenting that we liked, well then, you know, pretty help the kids really. And in terms of birthing, well, or, or any other physical exertion, I'm pretty sure, you know, they talk about fun runs, Well, I don't think people, you know, every person who goes on a fun run, they're not having fun the whole time. (laughs) They're not having fun with every step they take and every breath they take. And uh, if you're pumping at the gym or you're, you know, trying to improve your health and fitness or whatever, you you don't like every aspect of it. But... Something of that reward and the, the longer term goal. I was going to say it's more the short term gratification versus long term
1: gratification. And yeah. I think we're living in a society of so much short term gratification it's, that we rob ourselves
0: of the long term gratification, same as in birth, I guess, as well. Exactly. So that, that, you know, women can do birth brilliantly, not having to like every contraction that they have. I mean, it'd be great if they find some, some places that they, you know, find some some pleasure and some delight but they can do it still brilliantly whether they do or they don't and that requires a particular sort of support a particular type of head mindset if you like but yeah um
1: yeah and i think i think you know we're sort of obviously backing up the same tree it's that empowerment that just gets you doing what you're doing and i guess what i'm doing that you just want to have everyone experiencing that you feel that that is almost our birthright. yes you know to to be able to feel that um well that uh, well, empowerment's the word that comes to mind, of course. Just, yes. yes.
0: And, and that empowerment underneath it, of course, is really just that flow of hormones that are going to set up that physiological space for the mother and the baby to bond and then also those foundations for love and bonding and care and community they're all set there at birth and and we're 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 mucking with them big time really with what's happening in our birth culture so yeah
1: we really could learn a lot from the cultures that get all the women together and go off and birth together and
0: let's say co-sleep together
1: and, and raise a family together and you know it would be lovely to think that we could get back to that um
0: or as close to Yes, or at least finding, you know, what the modern version of that would would be like, which I think we are. I think we are in small pockets. In pockets, yeah. I'm, I'm still passionate because now I'm a grandmother of three and no doubt more to come. So it feels even more urgent for me. My work now feels even more urgent for me. and. Many of my friends who are grandparents feel that the things that they've been passionate about in their lives have a greater urgency now because we're looking further into the future with the grandchildren. You know, it's not just that you're looking into the future of your own children, but you're looking even, you know, decades further with with grandchildren. So um, that's a very, fueling my passion even more.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and in this Mums um, Mom, the Word community, I always ask the guests to share a time where maybe they struggled and, and how you got out of it. Just so that we can, I guess, not reinvent the wheel and learn from um, from your experience, something personally or professionally could you share with us, Ria?
0: Yes. I did reflect on that, and it took me back to really a time in the late 80s where a group of us, if you remember what I was saying before about some of the those of us working early in birth were not medically trained um, in the home birth scene, and so we felt we wanted to set up a, a direct entry midwifery course that mm-hmm. we, we ourselves would do. So to not have to be nurses before we did mid, midwifery, There there was a bit of a rising of this across the world, in America and Canada, as well as um, in some of the European countries. So we're all sort of in contact with one another, um, talking these things through. And remember, this is by phone or by letter, yeah, not, not, not by fax so. or, or anything. Um, so we worked on that for really a year and a half, and we had contact with universities, and we designed a program, and we were looking like it was, you know, it was feeling like it was possible. Um, and then there were some government, cha- you know, changes in the politics, changes in the finance. And anyway, it, it, all that work we did came to naught at that point. This was in 89. We fi- finally got that together as a, as a um, you know, proposal. So that was great devastation to, to that small group of us and to a larger group of women who were sort of around the edges of it. Um, and in fact, it wasn't until 2001 that the first in Melbourne, the first direct entry midwifery course happened which is still happening still going on now so that's a long timeline to wait um from the point of view so for me personally at that point as well as professionally it felt well for the group it was just quite devastating that all that work was for you know was all that work for nothing Mm. Um, of course taking taking stock and seeing how time and different things unfold. Of course, it was never for nothing, and it did come forward in the end. But for me personally, um, I felt, well, you know, I'm involved in birth working in a strong way, um, but I felt like I needed some sort of qualification, and that 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 direct entry midwifery course would have been it. But I felt like I needed something to ground my my awareness and my skills into... it together. Yes. So I then that a few of the women who were involved did go and do nursing and then midwifery. I went down a different track and went back to uni and did counselling and psychology and went down that pathway, which I felt would have a grounding in, in the sort of emotional support work that was really m- my role at a birth anyway. Um, and that, in the end, of course, in a way, sadly, but it's, it's of great Usefulness, it seems at at the moment, because there's so much awareness now about birth trauma, and so combining, you know, an awareness about birth as well as counselling and psychology and what have you, that that really enables something of some useful skills to offer to women post birth. As I say, sadly, the numbers of in, in terms of birth trauma is growing, and so. What seemed at the time something that I, a pathway I didn't want to go down, you know, one was closed off to me, another opened, which as time has gone on has been has served me very well as well as being something useful into the community as well. So I guess that thing of, you know, in the immediacy of struggles, again, you, you know, having people around you who understand the depth of what you're going through is important, which is, was part of what we were all offering to one another, that grief a shared grief about something that we'd worked so strongly for, but it didn't work out. Um, but then finding, you know, staying, not giving up on the passion, but staying with something of that central core of what your what your passion is, and finding that there are other pathways that that energy can can be, you know, put forward into. And that, you know, if you've got a longer term perspective, then everything in life that you do and that you struggle with and the strengths and the, the challenges that you face, whether you think it was a failure at the time or somehow or other you were robbed, some, somewhere or other if you stay true, true to it will come forward in a different way and offered in a, in a much more um, useful way maybe I could say. So Very,
1: very wise words, Ria. Thank yes. you. <laughs> in lots of contexts. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Um,
1: I'd, love, I'd love to hear from you the best advice that you ever received.
0: Yes so um so many things but I I want to bring that into a really quite a contemporary situation right now for me as a grandmother um and uh, it's quite topical, as I'm saying about this grandmother, but David Suzuki was interviewed. Well, he's, he's been here just recently. He did lots of interviews, and, but one of them was with Dumbo Feather. You may know that beautiful magazine that is so inspirational coming out of Melbourne. And so he said in this, I'm just going to read it to you. He says, I urge every elder to stop spending so much time on the golf course or sitting around on the couch watching television, we've got something no other group in society has. We've lived an entire lifetime, and we have a responsibility to to put that energy into what's happening now. So, I feel like, you know, not that I spend any time on the golf course, and I don't spend that much time sitting and watching telly. But it it, it really inspires me again that ad, that advice and that call to to action, if you like, as grand. As a grandmother, particularly in the birthing arena, to to carry that forward, so that's that's a beautiful thing yeah, that I, I like it talk to at the moment. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you for stepping up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and some invaluable resources. Now I know there must be many, and I, obviously there's some other questions that I didn't get round to, but I'm I'm loving the content you've shared. But um, I'm sure you've got lots of resources you wanted to share with the audience. Yes.
0: Yeah, so I want to. I went back to when I had my first baby and uh, just shifting from the birth, actually, there was a big shift for me also in my understanding about parenting issues and how to be a parent. And the book that really came my way at that point that was one of those really just opening my mind to a whole other way of thinking and being and so impactful was a book called The Continuum Concept by Jean Liedloff. Mm -hmm. It's still around and I guess it was one of the early books that then now as the decades have gone on would be seen in the context of attachment parenting yeah that wasn't even a word you know that wasn't a phrase back then but really that's where we've come to now and so I think there's also a website and and what have you so that's that I think is a beautiful resource to people who are attuned to following through with the instinctive sort of normal physiological birth and then the bonding and then that flow on into a more instinctive way to be with our babies, yeah. that, would, that would be an invaluable resource. And I guess in more contemporary times, there's a lot of other literature about attachment parenting, but some of the books are available now that sort of touch on some of these issues, one of them is Why Love Matters by Sue Gearhart. Okay. Um, and again, she's talking lots about... The hormones, as well as the psychology, as well as the importance of of that connection with babies, um, the Wonder Weeks. This yes, is, yeah. yeah, it's a Dutch one, as you what, know. Yeah, exactly. What a great book! There's that, an app now these days. Actually. I know. Yeah, I know. there are so many wonderful things. You know, at one point that book um, was out of print. I've been talking about it for probably 20 years. It was out of print, and it was going for for about 200 bucks on eBay at one point. So. Oh, wow. So it's a great book to get hold of and, as you say, the app. And then there's another book called The Science of Parenting by Margot Sutherland. Mm-hmm. And, again, it's looking at the, you know, the hormones. It's looking at what's going on in brain development. It's looking at that whole idea, idea that if you understand who this baby is and what this baby is going through as it develops, and, of course, the Wonder Weeks helps that so much, Um if you understand that, then, of course, it brings forward a whole awareness in our parenting about, well, how do we best support these babies, these toddlers, these children into that growth and development that, that is, you know, what's needed at those particular life or age stages. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it can help really to be so supportive of, dealing with uh, sometimes those tough things day by day with babies, if we can just take that step back and understand what the what the babies are needing and to, can bring forward our parenting in a different way. So I think they're great resources. I, I, I could go on much more about... No, but that's good, great.
1: That's good to get some of the, um, the parenting ones out, yeah. actually. Yeah. And, of course, I'd love for you to share all um, your details about how we can find out more about um, your services, obviously your website.
0: Please tell us about the book. Yes, so that book came out a few years ago called Birth with Confidence, Savvy Savvy Choices for Normal Birth and um, it talks about some of the things that I've talked about in terms of the, the pain issue plus really other information about what the stats are about the birth culture here in Australia but it's mirrored in many other developed countries as well. And just that, you know, those willing women, they they can't really be naively sort of just go into that birth culture thinking it's all going to be okay. They have really got to be mindful of the choices they're making in terms of where they're giving birth, whether they're going to feel safe in that space, whether there's sort of safety in the territory, because this will all play out in their hormones. So I talk a lot about those things. Um... So that's the first book, and I'm actually in the process of working on a second book now, which is awesome. yeah more into, you know, well, if you make the sort of choices to, to be with the people who understand about normal physiological childbirth, to be in places where you feel safe and that you have that territorial safe, safety so that you're undisturbed, um, if you've got all of that sorted, and you've got your head around reframing pain in the in the ways that I'm talking about and got got people around who can support you in that way, then still for some of us there are other deeper challenges um you know life stories and life challenges that can can sometimes be triggered in the birth process in that early parenting time and so i'm just going to be talking in that this next book about many more of those factors and again some of the support systems that might need to be in place so
1: more bringing in your counseling and psychology experience yeah amazing that's
0: uh have you got a
1: title a working title
0: um, i've got a few titles so one of the titles that I use, I guess or the way I, when I talk about these things in my education is to talk about wild cards you know that there can be life stories or life experiences that can act like wild cards in terms of yeah. the mind body connection in the birth itself or that can certainly play out in the postnatal period in our relationships with our babies, so maybe it'll be wild cards, but it could also be something like about going deeper, or I'm not sure. Yes. Few, okay. well, few. We'll
1: have to stay tuned.
0: Yes, and of course, all of these things are. Of, uh, my my work and my website is really uh, birthing wisdom. Um, although people tell me that if they Google Rhea Dempsey, they get onto all of this stuff. Yeah. Rather than birthing wisdom, but um, so my website is is uh, birthingwisdom.com.au. My Facebook page at this stage is Birthing Wisdom with Rhea Dempsey, Um, you know, all that information about where I I do counseling, my workshops, my talks and the book and everything, all of that you can be finding through those contacts, yeah, yeah.
1: Wow, thank you so much, Ria. I knew we would go over time and I'm totally happy with that. I am so fine. And as I said to you, this is raw and authentic and the message is so important that um, there's no way we could cut it short. And um, I think there's probably uh, a second episode at least with us <laughs> in here, maybe when the new book comes out or we can be talking about some of those um, issues that book two is going to
0: talk about. I would love to do that with you. Yes, let's do it. That will keep me on, on track
1: also fine I think you're on track without meeting me to do a podcast episode but I just want to thank you um for taking the time as as a busy grandma and birth warrior and just for everything that you've done for birth in Australia anyone who knows anything about birth in Australia knows your name and I'm um, just really thrilled we could get you on the podcast thank
0: you so much well, thank you so much too for having me. This is, you know, we're going forward, all these beautiful changes that are happening, so I'm happy to be bringing something of that knowledge of mine that's coming from way you know, back into to my past through those decades and bringing it out into a new format. Yes, okay. yes, well, we so,
1: appreciate it, yeah. yeah. Podcast uh, world appreciates it. Thank you so much, Ria.
0: Good, okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Mums the Word. Please remember to
1: subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, and join us on our Facebook page to help us share the message to more mums all over the world. We look forward to having you join us again next time, here on your trusted source for all mums everywhere, Mums the Word.